And hello, um, this is your host, Samaj Mudala, Geopolitical Pivot, platform for young practitioners and future leaders of foreign policy, national security, and all of that falls within its umbrella. Um, today is a very special day um, for a very special guest who um, we were interns together at the Cato Institute like a decade ago. Uh, that can, that was 2019. <laughs> it, 2019 literally feels like 30 years ago. We're not that old. <laughs> We're getting there. Um, so, I have with me um, Mr. I'm out of respect. Got to call you Mr. You're, you're old now. Um, Mr. Ashami, uh, who is currently um, studying to receive his PhD big boy in the house, and economics and at George Mason University. Uh, he's current research fellow at the Medina Institute for Nonviolence and Peace Studies since 2019. Um, he's also a current graduate fellow at the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. That's a mouthful uh, <laughs> as of 2020. Um, and he is a former Joseph uh, Schumpeter fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, um, and as stated, uh, former intern at the Cato Institute, where I met this individual. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic today. It's a lovely day. Um, weather is a little bit too cold for me, but uh, yeah, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm living. That's uh, I'm just in the moment, you know. It's um, That's all you can do nowadays. Yep. It is what it is. <laughs> it is what it is at this point. It's out of my hands. Um, so today is actually a very, I would say, important uh, topic, especially over the past four years. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we have a new administration as of yesterday. Um, this topic is actually um, even more important since yesterday President um, Joseph R. Biden had did a executive order reversing the, uh, the Muslim travel ban. Um, and then he plans to reform the immigration uh, process and the overall strategy. So today we're really talking about um, what are the main kind of misconceptions of Islam um, in regards to United States strategic policy um, and kind of how has that really impacted our stance with not just Muslim majority, um, our allies that are Muslim majority, um, but just also overall Muslim majority majority countries, um, we see that, you know, there's a lot of nuance and diversity um, in the MENA region, not even just the MENA region, but the Muslim world. A lot of, not a lot of people know just how massive the the Muslim world is. Absolutely. You know, it goes from, you know, Morocco all the way to like the western province of china and you know indonesia yeah, right uh, north africa there are a bunch of communities exactly. there like all over the place who, right who would have who would have thought that this massive geographical landmass um follows a central you know core religion but it has nuances in the practices and the following those religions um so the number one thing that we want I want to start off the conversation with with you um, is the the main misconception that Islam is a monolith. Um, it is indeed not a monolith. Um, you have various different schools of thoughts. You have various um, even within those schools of thoughts, you have subsections uh, within um, those schools of thoughts, and then you have 
cultural infusions or influences on the practices of Islam, um, depending on the country. So now I hand it over to you. Awesome. So I think what's quite important before we get to the topic of Islam being a monolith is setting the standard for what we mean by good strategic policy and sound Mm -hmm. policy, because I think it's really important to understand what it means to have misconceptions about Islam influence our policy, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, To my way of thinking, sound policy is policy that has the means adjusted to the ends and the ends adjusted to our means. So Mm -hmm. by saying that our means are adjusted to our ends, it means we figure out what the best ends is to to protect the interests of the United States, Mm -hmm. and we select the best means to secure this interest. Mm -hmm. Likewise, we we, we figure out what our means are, and we select ends that are adjusted to our means, Mm -hmm. right? We don't select ends that say, we simply cannot accomplish or will be uh, compromising a lot of other important ends if we seek to accomplish. Mm-hmm. So that's, I, I believe that's the core of sound policy. The second thing is, I think it's quite important to consider what we stand for as Americans and that we ought to protect the values of an open society. Uh, sound policy takes that into consideration and recognizes that we're not playing in the same um, the same game that Russia and China are, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're operating under fundamentally different values uh, domestically and likely internationally as well. Uh, and it's important to consider when we, we craft policy that um, we, we stand for these, uh, these values, at least domestically and hopefully internationally as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so moving forward, I think it's, inc- it's, it's a very important to consider how Islam is indeed not a monolith. Now, mm-hmm. high, obviously, a high-profile individuals and experts in the United States are, are quite well aware of this because of their experiences. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times people who, who, people who are lower uh, in, in rank don't, don't take this into consideration. And um, I, I think it's, it's, it's very important to consider this, that across time, uh, Islam had various different uh, interpretations, much like any other uh, religion. Uh, you know, you, you could read... Um, you know, the Old Testament or the New Testament and, and, and receive very different interpretations a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago than today. Uh, and these texts and, and perhaps all religious texts uh, are multivocal. That means they don't, they, they can be ambiguous in many, many circumstances. And it requires the interpretive eye of a scholar to really parse out what they mean. Mm-hmm. The Quran is no different than the Bible in that capacity. Um, and uh, of course, the reality is uh, under certain political environments, and for many, you know, we can discuss the multi-causal reasons, uh, Islam can be, uh, or the Islamic texts, can be used to push for pluralism, mm-hmm. but they can also be used to push for authoritarianism, and they have been used for both. Uh, so it's, it's important to keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, like you said, the, the, of course, Islam has, um, you know, the, the, traditionally people separate them to Sunnis and Shia, right? Mm-hmm. But it's obviously a lot more complex than that, because even within these schools, there are um, four legal schools within the Sunni mm-hmm. school, and uh, at least three different legal schools within the Shia school, and there's the Ibadi school. Mm-hmm. But even within the, each and every single one of these schools, this gets to my second point, 
there's a dynamic evolutionary structure. Each mm -hmm. one of these schools had a different, uh, different legal opinions, in a sense, a thousand years ago than today, mm -hmm. because different circumstances require these legal, uh, these legal edicts to change. Right. Um, the question is, you know, the, the, there are some schools that perhaps uh, evolve in ways that we find to be undesirable for the for human flourishing and others that do mm -hmm. um so it, it's important to take that into consideration when we look into you know what what our role is in the region and if we can do anything to help um so to speak the the, the good guys mm -hmm. right? like or, or, or good ideas to spread at all I think that's quite important. And, and then to also understand that things are changing by themselves. Right. Uh, whether we try to help or not, things are changing. And there is an evolutionary structure endemic to Islam uh, that, that allows these changes to happen. Right. No, um, I, uh, I agree with you. Um, I think it's especially also when you talked about um, strategic policy, which is the overall need for a better policy when it comes to the Muslim world. Um, for a lot of policymakers, um, both historical and now, you know, it's it takes less energy when trying to differentiate different Muslim countries in order to adapt, in order to establish different types of strategic policies that would then upend a new partnership um, that's mutually beneficial, rather than you know saying you know they're all alike, sure. we treat them all alike. Well, no. Because, you know, the modus operandi of Iran is very much different than Azerbaijan, than Saudi Arabia, and Yemen, and Oman, Iraq, Syria, so on and so forth. Absolutely. Um, and that is a major detriment um, that I think is very, it, it's very founded in this notion, in my opinion, of this Western, being Western oblivious to the nuances of larger civilization, quote unquote, civilization um, identities. Uh, so that, for example, even though this, had, this doesn't have to do anything right now with Islam, but, you know, Russia had the same problem when the Soviet Union had collapsed and there was an agreement that, hey, you're not going to go past these particular countries to expand NATO and the EU. At least that was the understanding. And then what happened by mid-1995 to 1999, NATO and the EU expanded basically to the, to the border of Russia. That case in point, where, where should people, especially when they start talking about strategic policy, start to either look or understand that it's best to start looking at Islam the same way that essentially, as far as its diversity, we look at Catholicism. Where we have no problem seeing Catholicism as Christianity, Evangelical, Baptist, Presbyterian, so on and so forth. But then when it comes to Islam, it's like, oh, it's Sunni and Shia. Well, no. Right. No. No, that's... that's no. Yeah. Wait. <laughs> so, like, where, for for those who are, who are genuinely curious about the nuances of Islam, is there a particular historical period that they should look at? You know, you hear things like the, Islam, the Islamic Renaissance or like classical Islam, the, the first four caliphs. Where should they look at? Or is it just like you just pick and choose? <laughs> that's, that's a fantastic question. Um, I think it depends what, um, 
what split you're interested in. Because if you're interested in the Sunni Shia split, you're probably most interested in the first hundred hundred years after the Prophet Muhammad's death. Mm-hmm. If you're interested in other splits like the formation of legal schools, then what's far more relevant is um, the period between the, the you know probably the, t- the first two hundred years in mm-hmm. a sense. Uh, but more broadly, the first 400 years uh, mm-hmm. after the death of the Prophet. But you'd like to look into specific individuals that formed these schools. Okay. For example, there are, there is in the Sunni schools, there is there are four major schools. There mm-hmm. is The first one was the school of Abu Hanifa. Okay. The second was the school of Malik. The third was the school of um, Shafi'i. Uh, and the fourth was the school of Ibn Hanbal. And all of these schools have, you know... Uh, major influences on the Sunni world, so to speak. Um, for example, Ibn Hanbal, uh, or Ahmed Ibn Hanbal, who is a very, he's a textualist in a sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, his school is very predominant in uh, the Arabian Peninsula, in Saudi Arabia and in Qatar and in uh, the UAE by and large. Um, so you see the influence, his influence, despite the fact that he died over a thousand years ago, his influence in the region, uh, because uh, the, ide- the ideology that spread in the Arabian Peninsula was based on people in his tradition, right? right? Ibn Taymiyyah, people are interested in particular individuals, people like Ibn, Ibn Taymiyyah and the person who co-founded the Saudi, the first Saudi state, mm-hmm. uh, Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab. So... That's where the term Wahhabism comes from. Mm-hmm. Right? So uh, uh, it's incredibly difficult mm-hmm. to, to really uh, get to like to get all the information you need, but it's available. Uh, if you research the, the names of these individuals, you could see their influences and mm-hmm. how exactly they came to form their legal frameworks uh, in which uh, other people uh, developed uh, the legal school. Right. Um, yeah. And would you say? And we're going to continue on this misconception of um, Islam being a monolith. I think, especially in today's current age, um, kind of the, the disapproval, I guess, or negative outlook at Islam has something to do with, you know, the rhetorics of Said Qutb. Sure. Um, and, you know, the, and to, and then his kind of like his influences with the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, and then also, you know, you constantly hear him and other, um, writers or controversial individuals for like Salafi jihadism. Um, right. It's important to, for people to know that just because what a very minority sect of Islam does, does not mean that the entire population of Muslims agree to whatever it is that their rhetoric is like for example what ibadis you know they don't their notions of islam is very philosophical it's very sure. very we can talk about it not forced conversion but if you convert it's through how it used to be and that's through actual intellectual conversation sure it's, absolutely it's about it's not about offensive jihad what osama bin laden is preaching it's about the actual internal struggle jihad but in a military sense because we're a nation we will only commit to war if we ourselves are attacked um, but then also you have when we talk about the nuances the zaydis in yemen who are now the houthis um, and the alawites in syria sure. how 
these people um, with Islam not being a monolith, it's so easy. Um, and I can see where the problem is, whereas that us U.S. policymakers, they see Houthis and they go, they're Shia. But it, 21st century politics is not that crisp anymore. Oh, no. It's, it's not right. black and white. Right. The, the, the Zaydis historically are far more similar in their evolution to Sunnis than Shia. Exactly. Uh, it, it's, it's abundantly clear if you really look into their legal structure and so on and so forth. And in fact, they coexisted with Sunnis for so long, intermarried with Sunnis. And the people who, and there were Zaydis in Iran, mm -hmm. they were entirely, uh, there were forced conversions of Zaydis in Iran to 12-er Jafari mm -hmm. Shiism by the 12ers, by the Shia, or mm -hmm. the other Shia. So, um, you know, it, it is this uh, this idea that, you know, Zaydis are essentially just another Shia sect, and there's this Shia. It, it doesn't hold a lot of historical weight. Zaydis have ha, historically have had a lot more beef, so mm -hmm. to speak, with 12ers, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like in Iran, than they did with Sunnis in Yemen. Mm -hmm. Um, because the, the problems they had with the Sunnis were purely political, never sectarian. They were never based on forced conversions. Right. They relatively lived very peacefully together on a religious mm -hmm. uh, basis. Sure, there was sectarianism here and there, mm -hmm. but it, was, it, was, it wasn't violent because civil society existed by and large between them. Right. Um, so that's, that's a great example to, to keep in mind. And with the Houthis, they represent a particular... Uh, it's it's a it's a political movement that has attracted Zaydis who felt um, pushed away by the mainstream politically. Mm -hmm. But not all Zaydis are Houthis. There are very big critics of the Houthis who are Zaydi mm -hmm. themselves. Uh, some who uh, you know don't like the aggressive uh, politics. Mm -hmm. that they believe it like that's a little bit too much. Don't go there. And others who just um, uh, don't like uh, say re rebellion by mm -hmm. and large. Um, so it's it's uh, even even when it comes to Zaydis, it's it's kind of, the, the political movements in Yemen are quite. Uh, it, it's difficult. You have you, you have also Sunnis joining the Houthis. Right. Uh, people who, who find, let's say, look at Saudi as a foreign invasion, and they want to join whatever force mm -hmm. to to push away this foreign invasion, uh, for better or worse. It, it's a fact. Mm -hmm. And um, but you're correct that the majority of. Um, Houthis tend to be Zaydi. That is, that is an accurate assessment. On the issue of Sayyid Qutb, that's an important thing to, to consider. That again, uh, whether Islam leans towards more pluralism or authoritarianism mm -hmm. is a function of sociopolitics and geopolitics in the region. Mm -hmm. uh, Sayyid Qutb had ideas, but the only reason his ideas were widespread is because of um, certain conceptions among Muslims and in the MENA region that emphasized oppression by imperialism. Mm -hmm. So, historically speaking, um, during the time of Sayyid Qutb, secularism was more prominent, but it right. was more of a state, social structure was very, I wouldn't say socialist, but socialistic, mm -hmm. state-planned. But it, it was secular and state-planned. Um, so Sayyid Qutb comes in and he's like, you guys are really secularizing society. Mm -hmm. And I have a big problem with that because um, I'm seeing more and more Muslims staying away from their faith. And you guys are losing as well because they lost against, you know, Egypt mm -hmm. lost against Israel in 1967, mm -hmm. really twice. It was a complete failure under Abdel Nasser. Um, 
so uh, that that idea did not catch a lot of fire until 1979. He wasn't most particularly, um, you know, popular leader. In 1979, you see a huge uh, shift in geopolitics because these ideas of Islam being attacked by both the West and local leaders mm -hmm. or national leaders in the Muslim world uh, caught fire. Uh, because of all, let's say, hijab bans, like you, you would literally see more freedom for Muslims in the West than in, in the Middle, Middle East, mm -hmm. right? Uh, there were hijab bans in Syria, in Turkey, in Iran. You could literally not wear, as a woman, you would not be able to wear the, the hijab in public right. areas. Um, so obviously that, that incites populism uh, against these ideas, mm -hmm. uh, secular ideas to be specific, aggressive secularism, which was prominent in the region. Mm -hmm. So in 1979, 1979 uh, two big things happened. In Iran, there's the Islamic Revolution or the Iranian mm -hmm. Revolution led by Khomeini, mm -hmm. which is successful. Of course, it starts before that. It starts around 1976 or 1978, depending on when you want to make it, you, mm -hmm. you want to read that it started. Um, and in Saudi, you have the invasion of Mecca by Salafis who are like, you guys are not religious enough. Mm -hmm. You need to start implementing more strict, strictly religious uh, rules and uh, we will not be sidelined uh, mm -hmm. by your rules because Saudi was relatively more liberal in a sense right. before that period. Mm -hmm. So then after that, you see Saudi, in order to maintain their uh, control over the region and please certain uh, influential actors, we come to like be more strict religiously, mm -hmm. essentially. So that's really what, what creates a, a shift towards... Um, more uh, more of a strong Islamic spirit, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It's not necessarily authoritarian. Mm -hmm. But the way that it manifested, particularly in Iran, a couple of years after the revolution, and in Saudi directly after the invasion of Mecca, was quite authoritarian. Mm -hmm. um, for example, the Islamic revolution was significantly a product of liberals as well, like mm -hmm. Mahdi Barzagar, who are constitutionalists. The problem is two years down the line, they had a lot of pro probably six months down the line, but it really started being a bigger problem two years along the line. Um, they started having bigger problems with the more religious folk who were perhaps more authoritarian, mm -hmm. and uh, they did not reach a good agreement and were purged from the political circles, which right. is quite unfortunate because they played a big role in the Islamic revolution. And they weren't anti-Islam whatsoever. Um, and this gets to another point I'd like to make uh, yeah. before I pause. I apologize. I've, no, I've, been, it, I've been going on for a while. This is your platform, uh, my guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I think another point to, to keep in mind is Muslims who prefer, who appreciate democratic values and, and, and values mm -hmm. that emphasize freedom and the values of an open society are not necessarily um, un, uncommitted Muslims mm -hmm. or, or uh, not very religious Muslims. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like the situation where you have someone who, let's say, like, I'm Muslim, but you know, it's not really like that. Right. There are people who are very, very religious, uh, who are very committed to the faith but still believe that the faith which emphasizes justice and peace can only be practiced under an environment that maintains justice and peace, which is an environment that uh, is that emphasizes the values of an open 
as a society mm-hmm. and a democratic nation. Um, so, and I, I would hope that I am committed to my faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm certainly not someone who does not care about my faith, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I believe that uh, values which are essential to open societies mm-hmm. are uh, part and parcel of my faith. Right. No, I. I I have no quarrels with anything that you just stated, and that kind of mixes mixes into another two, I guess, misconceptions um, as Islamic culture, kind of from the Samuel Huntington point of view, clash civilizations think that Islamic culture clashes uh, with Western culture, and that liberal democracy being quote unquote universally the best form of governance for Islamic culture uh, or the, the the Muslim world. Um, my number one thing has always been this, that the notions of liberal democracy, especially American um, I guess form of liberal democracy or constitutional republic, it's still relatively new in the notions of it's only been here for about 200, a little bit over 240 years. Um and that these cultures that have existed for thousands of years, although there's always been remnants of a democracy, um, but there, it's not the form in which we we govern ourselves through the notion of a social contract that John Locke likes to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, for example, on how some of the original um, caliphs were, were um, elected, essentially, to lead uh, the caliphate. Um, some, some communities, you know, they have their shorter councils. Um, they, there are some instances where they do, um, actually govern by, you know, vote or council negotiations. It's not this notion of all the entirety of the Middle East is, you know, right with authoritarianism and they don't know or understand democracy. No, they've had the understanding of democracy, but it's not under the, the classification or the name democracy same way india has had democracy for thousands of years but they didn't classify it as democracy it's just that the the term of democracy or what it has come to represent is something that is relatively new the same way where the expansion or the desire to expand liberal democracies overseas is something that we really started to see at least actively pursuing under woodrow wilson uh, with the, the 14 points at the Treaty of Versailles, and then again after FDR with the establishment of the United Nations. And that's where you really started to see liberal internationalism for what it is. Um, this clash of civilization concept, I think that kind of goes also into the first point, where in order for this clash to happen, Islam has to be seen as a monolith. It has to be seen as a, a singular political polity that has no differences whatsoever between them all, so that it's easier to classify or categorize the world in its distinct dominant civilizations. So people say, oh, look, India is going against Pakistan. Well, of course it is. It's Hinduism versus Islam. Or China is going after the Uyghurs. Oh, of course. It's the Hans trying to remove Islam from the Western provinces. Right. Xinjiang. Of course it's going to happen. Or... It's uh, Russia against the West. Of course, it's Eastern Orthodoxy versus Catholicism. Exactly. Right. It, no, because <laughs> like even with Eastern Orthodoxy, you have 
the Greek church, the Armenian church, the Russian church, the Georgian right. church, the Ukrainian church. Well, and the Greek church has problems with the with the Russian church exactly. right now. Exactly. It's like there there's some yeah, these things need need to be considered very very much. That should be considered. That even in Islam in the Muslim world, Indonesia is different from Malaysia. Malaysia is, is different from from Pakistan. Different from Afghanistan. Absolutely. And Pakistan is only connected, quote-unquote, with Afghanistan because of the Pashtun nationalists that the Taliban like to exploit for their not just their recruitment, but also for their overall strategic grand strategy against the United States and so on and so forth that Pakistan likes to exploit. Um, Iran is different from Syria, who's dominated by minority sector Alawites, um, who is different from potential Shia communities in Lebanon, and so on and so forth. Um, it's just... I think that, especially for the 21st century, we have to do away with the notion of class civilization. You have to. With Entirely the, in agreement with With you. the expansion of globalization, borders are not as fixed as they used to be. Yes. You know, everybody's connected social media wise through the internet. It doesn't matter where you are at all anymore. Quite frankly, this is this is the problem where not only do you have a Britain Woods problem, the 1944 Britain Woods conference that established the World Bank, the IMF, so on and so forth. That system that the United States is the hegemon over is in trouble. But then also the 1648 was finally entry to, to to determine the the concept of the sovereign nation state is also under threat and you know oh, sometimes what do you mean what is it under threat by what transnational connectivity well how do you think that when the insurgents in the middle east were destroyed where did they go they went to africa it's much right. better that you have wider area porous borders government is weak you do whatever you want the populace already can't stand the government right you're providing a security service, economic, cultural, social. You already fit in. All you do is just integrate your your you know your fundamental ideology, and then bam, you have your own little microstate. Yep. So back to now the tie that into the class civilizations. If we're going to do away with this concept of class civilizations and really look at the world pragmatically, especially for the Middle East. That also means get rid of the, the understanding of the Sykes-Picot agreement because that's just that that doesn't even help you, like Jordan really like you. <laughs> like right. you. Weird looking country, weird, weird looking territory. Weird and is there. Um, where? How can we remove that institutional? I guess that cultural mindset of like here are the distinct geographic regions for the predominant i guess population of these groups you have shias in mexico you have muslims in brazil the tri-border area between argentina brazil and uruguay yeah like, I, I have a couple of muslim friends who are of, of um, indian origins uh, who, who are technically trinidadian mm -hmm, right right um so yeah absolutely like, these are great great points to consider where because now as you say as we kind of agreed earlier it's no longer black and white you can't look at the world in black and white right no i'm entirely with you there um i have 
these are fantastic points, and I'd have to comment on them quite <laughs> extensively. <laughs> on, um, I think that there are a couple of problems with the whole framework of clash of civilization. The okay. first one is the necessity of, of, of regarding the world uh, as a block, as it's separate blocks of monolithic cultures, which we mm -hmm. talked about. And I think the second one is uh, the problem of seeing differences in culture as necessary, necessarily resulting in conflict. Right. And I think that's a mistake in and of itself. That even if we have different cultural, you know, different cultural backgrounds uh, with uh, others, it does not mean that we have to get into conflict with them. In fact, it's under certain institutional arrangements. These different uh, the, the different cultures could result in um, sources of mutual benefit. Right. Uh, we could think of culture as a source of comparative advantage, mm -hmm. just like uh, you know different countries have access to different resources and different they have different comparative advantages in economic production. Culture can be thought of in a similar way, and I'll read a pas passage really quickly, Ooh. which emphasizes this. This is from a book called. Culture and Enterprise mm -hmm. by Donald Lavoie. He's mm -hmm. an excellent economist. From he's based in GMU, uh, mm -hmm. so that's another thing. But he's he passed away uh, mm -hmm. around two decades ago. But he is certainly an excellent economist. And uh, I quote: um, "The position we are taking here is that each culture carries with it advantages particular to its own context, mm -hmm. which might serve to advance economic development." Yet we need to ask, or, or what we need to ask uh, is which elements of American culture or of this or that particular subculture of American society constitute its comparative cultural advantages mm -hmm. and which probably different elements of German culture constitute its advantages. Mm -hmm. Each society has cultural advantages which will support for varying aspects of market coordination to varying degrees. As Peter Berger suggests, two countries with a comparative advantage in two different products can trade the products to their mutual benefit. Mm -hmm. Perhaps cultural factors operate in the same manner. Each society has within its grasp a unique repertoire of cultural resources, Nature endows some societies with rich oil deposits and others with fertile soil. Similar to these natural resources, culture provides some societies with the kinship network conducive to building complex credit markets and other societies with a strong work ethic. Mm -hmm. So I think what's quite important here, end quote, by the way, before I... <laughs> um, what's quite important here is to consider that we could actually make benefit of these different cultures mm -hmm. insofar as we have an inst a larger institutional framework which is conducive to trade and peaceful cooperation. Right? Obviously, this does not exist without any, any particular institutional framework. There are institutional frameworks which advantage war and violence, mm -hmm. etc., etc. But the question is then, how can we advance an institutional framework where this is the reality, where instead mm -hmm. of a clash of civilizations, we have these different cultures being sources of peaceful cooperation? Mm -hmm. And that is certainly possible. And not only possible, it is the necessary extension 
of protecting an open society in the long run. Mm -hmm. Because part of what it means to have an open society is uh, free trade mm -hmm. and free a voluntary association. Uh, and being and the only way you could protect that in the long run is to try to maintain peace with as many as people as possible. Right. And this is entirely in line with what our country stands for uh, from its very beginning, from George Washington's address, emphasizing that we want no military alliances with any country in that in the, in the violent and aggressive capacity. Mm -hmm. And we want trade relations with every country. Right. Um, so... That's a, perhaps a long-run goal to, as, as, a, as a fact of, of sound policy. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, with regards to democracy in Islam, this goes back to your earlier point, which I th think is an excellent point. Um, I think it's, this, speaking in terms of democracy can muddy things because democracy is, um, it's it's a multi-vocal term in and mm -hmm. of itself. It can mean many different things. Mm -hmm. But I think a, perhaps a better word or better words that we could use um, are things like freedom of speech, mm -hmm. responsive government, government mm -hmm. that is, is responsive to its constituents, mm -hmm. um, you know, freedom of assembly, freedom of press. Mm -hmm. These are things which I believe are supported by most Muslims because if you say democracy, Muslims can... Uh, react uh, in a reactionary manner due to their trauma of what it means to have democracy imposed right. on you. Um, but when it comes to things like freedom, freedom of press, freedom of speech, and freedom of assembly, uh, and, and full suffrage, separation of powers, mm -hmm. pluralism, in general, Muslims are more open to these ideas. Right. And uh, I, I think that that's where these are the values we should um, or, or people who are in these countries, that is, mm -hmm. should try to push for. And um, de democracy is the term is perhaps a little bit, you know, vaguer than that. Right. And historically speaking, you're absolutely correct. There were many venues to, to to assure and secure that government is responsive to its constituents, and that's the core of democracy. It's right. making sure government is responsive to its constituents. Right. There are many different forms of that: representative democracy, direct democracy, um, you know, so on and so forth. But yeah, I think you're exactly right. And by the way, on that point, there is an excellent book called "The Islamic Roots of Democratic Pluralism," mm -hmm. published by Oxford University in 2001 by uh, Abdul Aziz Sajidina. Mm -hmm. He is also a GM. We keep referencing GMU scholars. Uh, <laughs> he is, he's was, an, a scholar of Islam in George Mason University. Was your so, alma mater's my alma mater? So, I mean, it's, it's something. <laughs> it's that, an excellent <laughs> university. <laughs> uh, but no, you're right. I think, but even to your point, which you just made about not necessarily using the term democracy, but kind of promoting what, the underbelly of democracy is. I mean, Middle Eastern authoritarian dictators did that. They didn't necessarily call it democracy. I mean, look at al-Sisi. When he took over, oh, I'm going to give you elections. Freedom mm. of assembly. Freedom mm. of the press. You know, jobs. You know, you, you know plurality. I'm, I'm pretty sure they're still waiting on that. Uh. Uh, <laughs> like, I, I mean, the Assad family did the same thing. Starting Absolutely in 1970. Not entirely right. 
You know, um, I mean, the only person that was true who basically said you ain't getting nothing was the Dominic Saint. Um, but, <laughs> but at least he was up front with that. Right. It's unfortunate, but he was like, hey, don't expect this. Right. Um, you can have speech, but just know that out of every three people that's in that room, two of them are with me and they will snitch on you. Um, right. The walls are listening. Yeah, literally, the walls are listening. Um, you know, the same thing with um iran leading up to the 79 revolution with um palawi where he was like yeah you know we're going to empower the modulus we're going to give you a great prime minister that's not a puppet wink wink um savak never heard of him um so well, they were just as bad as Saddam Hussein's. Uh, oh my god they were know, horrible they were horrible uh i mean Pakistan did the same thing, but the military was like, I have a different idea. Um, like you, it goes on and on and on where the countries of the Middle East, they want the framework, the foundations of what it means to have a democracy. Um, just don't call it democracy. Democracy has been literally trademarked by the Western world, the same countries that carved up the Middle East. So if you say, yeah, I want democracy, you give legitimacy to these Salafis. They're like, oh, so you like being colonized, basically, by mm. non-Muslims. You right. like being told what to do and, go, quote, unquote, go against your Islamic culture. No, no. I just want to be able to speak my speech in a square. It's not necessarily saying I want democracy, but we see hybrids of democracy. Look at Morocco. The king still technically has the last say, and the prime minister comes from the dominant political party that the king basically approves of. Jordan has the same thing. It's so like we had, there is the possibility of democracy in the Middle East, but it has to come, as you stated, evolutionary. It can't be forced. People tried in Afghanistan. Look what happened. <laughs> like you, <laughs> that's right. still going on. Even in Iraq, right? Like that's the entire point. I think that's a fantastic lead up to, like, first of all, building upon the point of the dynamic nature of Islam, that it has yeah. its, an evolutionary structure from within, like any other society that yeah. is. And that change has to be endogenous. Right. It cannot be exogenous. It cannot, cannot be forced from without. Right. And, um, this this needs to be emphasized, and our representatives, um, you know, globally need to need to understand this: that we cannot force democracy onto any nation. That is not our responsibility. First mm -hmm. and foremost, that's not what that's not what our representatives are there to do. They're right. here to protect us and our rights and our nation. Right. But other than that, it's something that violates sound policy because sound policy means selecting. Ends that meet your means, and right. we do, simply do not have the means to reconstruct struct, uh, social structure entirely. Right. That uh, not something that any nation can do to any other nation right. effectively uh, entirely. And people usually, you know, people talk about these things usually cite Germany and Japan as examples of successful <laughs> post-war reconstruction, but these are two nations with severely different uh, so so social realities. Number one, 
there were agreed upon national identities in both of these cases. Mm-hmm. And number two, there was a focal legitimate authority. Mm-hmm. So people kind of agreed on this 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 political apparatus is legitimate mm-hmm. all you had to do is 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 reform the political apparatus it's sort of like let's say the company microsoft mm-hmm. just okay the building is there you're just rebuilding the building mm-hmm. kind of like but microsoft is still there right the problem with a lot of the um, a lot of countries in the middle east and the muslim world to be entirely frank with you is that there is no number one there isn't a strong national identity mm-hmm. for better or worse it's not necessarily a bad thing right but combined with another thing there's a lack of focal legitimate authority mm-hmm. and they're forced under one authority right so now you have people who let's say are under uh, or tribesmen or tribes people in general they they find legitimacy in their tribe leader Right. And people, people are very religious, find legitimacy in their religious leaders, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And they don't have a focal authority. There's no, there isn't this, this national authority that they can all agree on. That's what's difficult. And this is a hallmark of a nation that wants to live in peace with each other. Right. As, as a country, for example, it's quite important for us to have one legitimate president. It's important that we look at, even if we disagree, even if we don't like these things, the things that this person does very, very much, we can, you know, suck it up because, well, that's that's what any nation needs to stay intact. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you have a lot of fractionalization. Right. Um, So this goes to back to Sykes-Picot. These nations were cut, uh, cut in shapes that don't match the way that they regard themselves. Mm -hmm. They don't match the focal authorities that they see. Mm-hmm. So basically you have a lot of different nations under one nation mm-hmm. and they're competing with each other to impose their views on each other. If they were, if they had um, more decentralization to be able to govern themselves locally, the violence that ensued would not have had to ensue. Right. And uh, the values of an open society would be, would be able to evolve much more freely because peace is in many circumstances a prerequisite to developing the values that we appreciate that are central to an open society Mm -hmm. it's in the kind of going what you're talking about germany and japan a third point was that what made their transition so successful especially after when hitler was ousted and japan um kind of went through their reconstruction they already had developed economies. Yeah, they said to rebuild from like the war, but they already had the economic infrastructure that could then rebounce after investments, a return to workforce. Granted, yeah, Germany was gone, but for the most part, Germany was able to bounce back in a way to its to a certain uh, degree. Because of Sykes-Picot and a lot of other compounding factors, especially how tribal identity is very is a, is a big deal in the Middle East, that economic foundation is weak, or that or is not there. Look at Oman, for example. There's no wonder why the, you know the Omanis they love you know Sultan Qaboos bin Said, God rest his soul, because you know he took over in 1970, and over time he built the identity of what it meant to be from Oman. Right. 
before then under his father, who was very regressive and very paranoid and didn't really agree with anything, it was still based off of your tribal identity. Right. It was so easy for Portugal to take Muscat. They were all just tribal people on camelback. Granted, it was, it was the same people that kicked Portugal out and then established the Omani Empire from Muscat Zanzibar. But, <laughs> and then, you know, the Ottomans tried, wasn't successful. Um, and then the British made their agreements. Uh, but it's, it's that, as you kind of pointed to, there are... Colonial, Western colonialism and Western imperialism, I mean, for the British, it was just purely simply because they wanted the energy resources to fuel their navy. So they literally, originally, Baghdad, uh, no, Mosul was technically supposed to go to the French, but the British were like, come on, like, just, I'm already kind of here, just, just give it to me, you know, <laughs> and Iran's already producing oil, and I'm telling you, you know, France, there's nothing here, little bit. The French know there's a lot of oil near near Mosul. Um, and so not only was it for resource um, exploitation and appropriation, but you're fundamentally destroying the the cult, at least the domestic cultural links that was already established for hundreds of years before imperialism got there. Right. You know, look at Nigeria, for example. I mean, half of Nigeria is Muslim, the other half is Catholic. And yeah. because of that, you have a violent insurgency going on right now, Boko Haram to the north and Catholics to the south, even though they have a Muslim president. Yeah. Even though they have a Muslim president, the energy resources, the, the higher GDP, oh, not GDP, but income per capita and the living standards is to the south. Where the resources are. So because they, those resources are not equally distributed amongst the entire provinces, you can say the same thing in four different uh, countries in the Middle East. It's, easily, it's easy to now exploit them. Not just exploit them for the resources, but exploit the grievances. That's how these insurgencies start. That's how the United States or other countries are able to exploit these countries. If there are already... If there are already destructions like linked to the to the links in the culture, then it's very easy to exploit them. Not even just exploit them, but then to essentially well, colonize. No, you're entirely right. Change their their entire outlook until the backlash comes, and then you look. Well, what did I do? Like I I didn't do anything. I mean. Right. Part of the reason Iran revolted against the Shah was because of the mistreatment the British, through the uh, through their energy organization, was treating the Iranians or the Persians. They, sure. they were they were horrible. Absolutely. So when we're talking about liberal democracies, especially liberal democracies coming to the Middle East, you can't, as you said, it has to be natural. Um, especially in societies where it's not about individuals, it's about the family, the holistic, the community. Yes. If yes. you come to a community that's that's always been about the family, and you say, "Oh, the individual is much more important than the family," well, what the hell do you mean? Like, you, <laughs> the individual came from this family, so without right. the family, they're nothing. Well, yes, that's true. In the Western construct, we'll come back to say, "Well." Yeah, but you are the master of your own destiny. 
Well, no, I don't want to be the master of my own destiny. I want to look out for my tribe, my family, my country. We have a problem with that. It's the same reason how a lot of Western people look at women who willingly wear their hijab. Why would you wear that? Right. Don't you feel constricted? No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Why do you wear a hat on a hot day? Like, you, cause you, like, it's, we have so many cultural ignorances that's prohibiting, as you stated, cultural exchanges in the economic terms. We have cultural advantages. Every country, every predominant culture, I'm not even going to call them monolithic, because in my perspective, there's no such thing as a monolithic culture, especially right. nowadays with uh, internet and people connecting and like, oh, I like that idea. Let me take that idea and put it in my culture. Well, then you just change the culture. Yeah. There's, you can't, I just think that honestly, the United States, the strategic mindset of the United States is too based off of 20th and 19th century European geopolitics. It, it, you have to change it. You have to. Otherwise, the the 250 year theory may prove true. Do you know the 250 year theory? Is it the one where it says that an empire basically lives for 250 years and then dies away? Or Essentially, that about every 250 years for a great empire, they start to wither away. Essentially. But based the decisions of the, the government of that empire can either thwart that withering or accelerate it. Mm. We're about 246 years. <laughs> yeah, give or take. The next presidential election is 20, 250 years. Um, I'm not pushing conspiracy theories, but I'm like, hey, the past four years has been quite interesting. Um, <laughs> But it happened to the British, happened to the Ottomans, happened to the Mughals, happened to the Romans, happened to the Greeks, happened to the Chinese, the Mandate of Heaven. Um, I think things have to, you know, structurally, institutionally change in how we look at uh, national security and other people. I'm entirely with you on that, 110%. And... You know, we need to look at a couple of things when we talk about, like, this goes back to, you know, some things I disagree with with, with Francis Fukuyama, mm-hmm. who I think is an excellent scholar. I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. not, I'm not discounting his work entirely. Absolutely not. But at the same time, uh, I, I think that some of the things that he says may be ahistorical in a sense. For mm-hmm. example, Islam was far more... Uh, structured around markets, for mm-hmm. example, free markets historically than today. Mm-hmm. The reality is if we were to look at the Muslim world uh, literally a thousand years ago, between 800 AD and 1258, mm-hmm. uh, we would see uh, a, a, an order that is relatively very decentralized. There is a lot more intellectual freedom mm-hmm. uh, than today, literally than today. And uh, for, uh, uh, an order that is a market order, by mm-hmm. and large. And this kind of order uh, incentivized uh, innovation. For example, you have scholars like Ibn al-Haytham, who literally invented the camera, the first camera. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he worked with the Buyids in Iran and Iraq. And when they started giving him lower, uh, they sponsored him less, basically, so 
lowered his salary. He literally went to Egypt with the Fatimids and then gave him more money to, to, to work on his invention. Mm-hmm. So this decentralized, and this is something to keep in mind, the Muslim world flourished under a decentralized order because mm-hmm. it's such a diverse diverse area. Mm-hmm. There's so many different ethnic groups, different tribes, different religions, mm-hmm. different ideologies. The flourishing was not under the Ottoman Empire. Mm-hmm. It was not under a unified Umayyad Empire. Mm-hmm. It was not under an Abbasid Empire. Mm-hmm. The flourishing occurred most clearly under a decentralized fragmented mm-hmm. Abbasid Empire, which broke down into like so many different smaller statelets. Mm-hmm. And that's when the Muslim world became the richest. Right. More freedoms to trade with each other, more mm-hmm. freedoms to go around the world and to have competition between all these different um, princes and rulers mm-hmm. and tribe leaders to provide the best standard of uh, of living, essentially, to a certain degree to that. You know, obviously, it's not so great today. Right. We're not so great, but to that, to, to, to compared to the standard of the time, it was the greatest in the world. So, so keeping that in mind is quite important. And what we see, and this is something I want to emphasize, three waves of interventionism against the Muslim world, which yeah. have, in my opinion, ruined it. Number one, or have made it more difficult to heal. Mm-hmm. Number one, 1258, the sack of Baghdad from the Mo- Mo- yeah. Mongols, right? Yeah. The Mongols come in, sack Baghdad, Suddenly, the culture of openness, being open to reading Greek works, to being open to reading Chinese works, being open to, to translating all the works of the entire world and getting scholars from the entire world, literally, to, to, work, to, to, to expand human knowledge, mm-hmm. that was shut down. Because now, Muslims were afraid of the other. Right. It's no longer an open society compared to, to that time, mm-hmm. basically. So that's one. Number two. Uh, European imperialism, which uh, happened across a very long period of time, created a, uh, essentially ultra-conservatism, of being afraid of the other, of what's different, of, of openness and mm-hmm. what an open society requires. Uh, that's another thing. And uh, like you mentioned, there was a lot of exploitation. So now, if the exploitation is coming from nations which call themselves capitalist, right, which call themselves liberal, my natural reaction as a Muslim is to say, I don't want capitalism and right. I don't want liberalism because the people who exploited me right. are capitalist liberals. And then the second, I think, I think the last one is, not the last one, but it's certainly happening right now, is the collaboration of many Western powers, including our country, with supposed reformers in these countries in a blatant way. Mm-hmm. which I believe is severely impeding actual, genuine, endogenous mm-hmm. social change. Mm-hmm. For example, in Iran, you know, there, there's this lady who is famous for, uh, you know, removing the hijab and, and things like that. There are many different, you know, cases. I'm just giving one case. And, uh, you know, obviously, I, I think that she has the right to do that. The problem is uh, she has many pictures you know, sitting next to and standing next to um, U.S. officials who have an incredibly aggressive policy against Iran, mm-hmm. uh, like Ma- Mike P- Pompeo uh, and uh, Madeleine Albright against mm-hmm. Iraq, a woman, you know, with, with all due respect, who has said that it, w- it was worth it to, to impose sanctions on Iraq, which killed 500,000 children ex- in excess deaths. Mm-hmm. Um, 
No, and she said she she was told that she was told this figure, and she said the price is worth it. So that's um, again, you know, love them or hate them. The reality is, it is it's understandable why Iranians would find people who are pushing for personal freedoms to to, to look at like treasonous and mm-hmm. seditious um, individuals. Right. Who are working against the well-being of, of them? Right. So if our if our interest is to uh, to, to expand uh, the the values of an open society around the world, then we're to my way of thinking, we're way better off engaging in peaceful cooperation, even to, despite the, the horrid things that we believe some countries do. Mm-hmm. Number one, it benefits us because that's a, that's a, essentially that's what trade is it's a mutual benefit it is in our benefit as americans and that's what our representatives should be doing anyway and number two it facilitates for natural change to occur in their countries because our interactions are not based on imposing our views on them mm-hmm. they're based on treat like treating them with dignity and dignified equals as they are and uh, tr- engaging in mutual benefit. The mm-hmm. way they know us will be trade, not exploitation and not coercion. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. Um, especially with the decentralized, de- can't even talk today, decentralized um, aspect of it. Um, I mean, that's how Christianity uh, expanded through trade sure. routes. Um, and at that time, um, early, you know, early on Christianity is definitely not the Christianity that it is today. Um, some people try to use it, you know, in, in the European part, you have like Christian Democrats, uh, but then you also have other people who like to use Christianity for authoritarian reasons. Um, look at Poland and Orban and Hungary. Um, but you're, no, you're absolutely right. Um, that how can you be a power that likes to promote freedom of speech, um, the Bill of Rights, and so on and so forth, but yet the some of the policies that you have implemented has resulted in the deaths of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people um, innocently. They had nothing to do with the conflicts. They just right. so happened to be born at the wrong time. Um, how can you, you know, state you know, I you want to see the democratization of the Middle East, but yeah, you can't do that through military operations. The American experiment was it was a and and I guess in some degree, granted, yeah, we we fought a revolutionary war, but the development of the American experiment, the American identity was through was a, a grassroots understanding that we are different from the old world and we have the resources here so far to really create our world that you know we were already economic we we're already part of the economic mindset i mean Damn it, we riot it because we didn't want to pay taxes <laughs> so <laughs> um but my thing is, can we not say the same thing for Arabs and Muslims? Right. Not even just Muslims, just now, just the Middle East in general. Mm-hmm. That the aftermath that we face today are consequences of historical choices. They are. You, you're not going to tell me that 
the concept of modern day Iraq has always been the concept of of Iraq. It had no, it wasn't. Right. It, the only de facto permanent, I guess, border thing like, would be Iran. Iran has been that size for God knows how long. Um, give or take Azerbaijan and so on and so forth. And then their whole Iraq, Syria and so on and so forth. But you can't, especially then on talking about the notion of Iran. Iran, the people of Iran have always been protesting every day since 1979. Even with the successful notions of the Islamic Revolution, there's always been a particular portion of the population that's like, I don't want this. Um, but... And then, same here, right? Like, right, the same, same thing here. We've always protested, one thing or another. Absolutely. And, and a lot of these Iranians came here. Like, they, they right. refused continue to live under an order which they believe did not represent their values. So I think right. right. So, but then that takes you then to the to, to continue with the Iranian example where, you know, Iran is a very, they're an ancient civilization, even though that they, um, they pride themselves with their Islamic heritage. Um, the notions of change happening in Iran has always come from Iranians. Granted, you know, the Soviets and the Brits invaded them. But at the end of the day, if you look at any type of power structural change, it has always come from Iranians. And even with the very state-enriched authoritarian notions of you know, the Ayatollah, um, domestically, Iran has always had a capitalistic market. It always has. Doesn't matter if it's socialistic, whatever the case may be. The people have always been innovative, and they've always had a, a way to, you know, sell their their uniqueness to an overall market. Um, I have the same optimism for Iraqis, for Syrians, for the Lebanese, for Saudis, so on and so forth. Egyptians, they all have. The innate power, as we saw through the at least the initial start of the Arab Spring until it turned to an Arab winter, um, that the the drive is there. It is, but the problem is, and I'm reading a book actually on um, Arab military forces, is that Arab military forces, especially those that were under the Soviet um, kind of umbrella utilize their security force or their military as a security force against those who want democracy or these democratic tenets. We have to find a way in our sound strategy to not blatantly appear like, hey, yeah, we're going to instigate some stuff here. And if it's successful, we want stuff in return. That's not the American experiment. The American experiment is, hey, we see you, we hear you, we support you. We'll give you your platform to make your voice heard. That's different from saying, I see you, I hear you, I support you, so I'm going to do this, and you're just going to have to accept it. And if you right. don't accept it, then, oh, well, you're still going to accept it. Right. That, no, that's excellent point. We, <laughs> I don't, and that's unfortunately 20th century mindset. Mm-hmm. This is not the same Cold War as it once was. You can con- you can classify, well, we're in a Cold War with China. Okay, oh, if that's the case, then that's the case. Then we adjust our policies to that. But 
we have to look at the world as it is. It's not made up of seven or eight massive monoliths. It's not made up of even within these quote-unquote civilizations. Everybody does not think the same. We cannot treat Sweden as Norway. We can't treat Algeria as Libya. We can't treat Morocco like Singapore, Malaysia, and Brunei. We can't. And so That's an Right. And so with that, you know, we it's not gonna be easy to get rid of these misconceptions. But to change misconceptions, you have to start the conversation somewhere. You don't start the conversation, you don't change the monoliths. I'd like to direct the, the listeners to a couple more resources yeah, before, before we conclude. I think that there's a really cool book maybe they'd like to look into. Mm-hmm. Islam and Capitalism by Maxime Rodinson, who was a Marxist and was criticizing Islam because capitalism and markets were so deeply rooted into mm-hmm. the legal structure of Islam and all of its sects mm-hmm. that he believed that it's almost impossible to eradicate uh, the importance of markets from Islam. Another really cool book by Benedict Kohler, uh, who's a German uh, economist, uh, is Early Islam and the Birth of Capitalism. And he suggests that capitalism's pillars and foundations started with Islam because of four uh, four particular institutions that were a product of Islamic innovation and Islamic law. So, you know, the, again, like you mentioned, the, the spirit of markets exists very deeply in Muslims and can be rediscovered. Mm-hmm. But certainly our constant interventions in the area don't help, number one. And number two, are not in line with our values and are not sound policy as mm-hmm. we define them. They neither uh, help us reach our ends, Mm -hmm. nor do we have the means to reach these ends. Mm -hmm. And uh, they are not in line with the values we want to protect. And our competition with China and Russia, who do do these wrong things, right? They they indeed do engage in these interventions. Um, But you see, even how they engage in the interventions is different. And it's different enough to give China and Russia leverage. I think that's right. China exploits the market aspect of Muslims. Mm-hmm. You want billions of dollars to pay? Sure. <laughs> take it. But right. you give us something in return. Mm-hmm. Russians are like, I see you have an insurgency. Now, granted, Russia and Syria have been buddy-buddy since 1970. So sure. it's completely understandable as to why they intervene in places like Syria, but not like Lebanon. Um, they pick and choose where. But where they do intervene and how they intervene, the people, especially those that support the government, are thankful. Russia is not market-oriented to an extent. Their their orientation is towards, well, one, obviously warm water ports, um, but two, they have a point to prove that they're back. China needs market-oriented mindsets and market-oriented exploitations in order to continue to fuel being the epicenter of global manufacturing. So, you know, if it's one thing to say, okay, I'm going to give you $12 billion to build a new residential complex for uh, disenfranchised Muslims. Oh, my God. 
giant thank you. So not only do you save the flawed regime, right. but you pacify some of the demands from a disgruntled populace. Right. Now, that's why you don't see China really sending special forces into the Middle East. Occasionally they do to secure their viable assets. But I'm going to talk, I may do an episode on this, on the, the Chinese strategy in the Middle East. It's all clandestine. Yeah. It's all no, exactly deception. Right. And that's wiser in a sense. It Even is. if I disagreed with the ends. Uh, the, I disagree with the ends of China's involvement. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> At the same time, the means that they select are a lot wiser and a lot more efficient than the means we're selecting. Exactly. Which shows our weakness, and uh, unfortunately, so far, we've made a lot of mistakes. I should not say weakness, but mm-hmm. these are major mistakes that we're making strategically. Right. Um, and we should. We need to be to revisit these things very, very closely. And it's honestly ironic now that you mentioned this that as a society that values openness we're engaging in these direct aggressive interventions in a sense i don't mean just violence but aggressive as in like trying to reconstruct reconstruct society as a whole Mm -hmm. uh which is i mean we don't believe in constructing our own economy let alone the socio-political and economic institutions of other nations right right our values are so like we're, we're, we're averse to this fatal conceit of intervention and we're the nation that's engaging in foreign intervention in, in the most um, invasive way. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a big problem and that's a strategic fault that, that we're engaging in. And you know, so. I'll end with that. I'm going to end it with this one statement. Um, whether people love him or hate him, John J. Mearsheimer, he stated that um, one of his books about the liberal order that the more we pursue liberalism overseas, the more illiberal we start to become domestically. And with that, I'm going to end it <laughs> on a note. You know, you got to leave cliffhangers. Arshami, <laughs> uh, it was always a pleasure. Um, to have these conversations with you um, whenever you you want to come on and do rants and how you know your economic thought by all means let me know and we can make it happen um, I already had people I see I told people I had someone coming on about the Middle East and they brought you up I was like how did you know I didn't even say anything yet like yeah, he's like oh he's the goat I'm like yeah, he is. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's my pleasure. Really, it's, it's, this is a lovely platform, and you're a great uh, interlocutor. And I really appreciate talking to you. You're very and well informed. So it's it's really my pleasure and honor to be on here. Hopefully, somebody in the Biden administration hears this. Because <laughs> yeah, I mean, we need to get our voice out there. We do. I applied to be one of his political appointees. And That's I, awesome. I got a cold shoulder. It's okay. Um. Oh. But this is my way of going around <laughs> to um, do the good work that, unfortunately, not a lot of people in our age group are doing um, because they don't have the platform, the means, or the connections, or the opportunities to do it. So rather than wait, I got impatient back in April of last year in the middle of the lockdown. I had nothing else to do. 
and created the platform. <laughs> and I created the platform. You know. Yeah. Um, so with that, we've been talking for an hour and fifteen minutes. You're a busy person, so I'm gonna let you go. Um, and until next time. Awesome. I look right. forward. See ya. See ya, bro.